This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Bob Moran, thank you for joining me in the trenches, finally. Oh, it's great to be with you, Germ. Thanks for having me. I have waited a long time to chat to you. And as we just said a moment ago, you are the second cartoonist ever to be on my podcast, the first being Scott Adams. Yeah, and this is the first interview I've ever done with another cartoonist. So it's great to finally talk to someone who, you know, does my thing. It, it is great, isn't it? There's like this common denominator. Yeah, and there really aren't many of us, you know, on this side of the argument. You could probably count us on one hand. Very few. Yeah. Very, very few. Um, and uh, I, I, I don't know why that is. No, I mean, I certainly wouldn't have expected it. Like I, I say to a lot of people, when this began, I really didn't think that um, so many of the cartoonists were going to go the other way. You know, I thought this would be like our moment mm. to shine as an industry. Um, it's a kind of a situation that should be tailor-made for people who think like cartoonists tend to think. Uh, it's a very strange and sad thing that so few of us are, are on this side. You know, because it would have been very different if if most yes. cartoonists had been against this. That would have been a really powerful thing, don't you think? Yes, but the same applies, I suppose, to the rock music industry. Yeah, yeah. Not one of them stuck it to the man, or maybe one or two. Yeah, and again, um, it's it, it should have been that totally their bag. You know, like uh, all, all the things they've been singing about for years was suddenly happening and um yeah rage against the machine became comply with the machine <laughs> i was gonna say raging with the machine but that's also yeah. good enough listen finally finally we both have scotch yeah scotch drinkers look at us finally yeah. you have no idea how happy this makes me <laughs> <laughs> and just just for the for the record i didn't put you up to this no, not at all. No, I just thought, well, it's eight o'clock. Uh, time, time for a drink. You know, it's been um, it's been a fairly hectic day, <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I thought, you know, th this uh, scotch and um, chocolate orange is what fuels most of my work. So, chocolate orange. Yeah, you don't look. You don't look at all overweight, so you don't eat much of it. <laughs> well, it's one of the only things I do eat. Probably that's why. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have so many different starting points, but let me start with the most boring. So let's talk about your background. Okay. Well, um, I wanted to be a political cartoonist from the age of about 12. Um, I'd always drawn cartoons, you know, since I could hold a pen, I always drew pictures of to make people laugh. And all through school, I drew my teachers and, and got into lots of trouble. And um, uh, when I was about 12 or 13, I, one of my art teachers said, hey, you know, there's actually a job that you can do for a newspaper doing this stuff. And um, decided that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, it's one of those things where there's no route. You can't go and do a degree in it. There's no set path. So... 
Uh, I did a degree in illustration, which is like the nearest thing I could find. And I was lucky because they let me do the political stuff on my course. And then uh, after graduation, I kind of worked in pubs and hotels for a few years. And I was just doing work all the time, sending them to editors. Um, I did, I, I had a, my first gig was working for the Morning Star. I don't know if you know the Morning Star newspaper, very left-wing socialist paper in this country. And uh, I would do a cartoon for them every Saturday for about a year, which was great. Just, you know, having a regular thing to do, um, kind of, it was good training, good practice. Um, then I did a brief stint at The Guardian one summer when their cartoonists were away. And the following year, this opening came up at The Telegraph. Um, so I, and I started out as their kind of um, second cartoonist, so doing two cartoons a week. And eventually I became their main cartoonist and I was with them for 10 years. Um, and, you know, that was going to be my my whole career, probably. I imagined I'd stay there till I kind of fell off my stool at sort of 85 or they kicked me out because I wasn't funny anymore. And that's what tends to happen. Um, but then all of this started and I kind of took um, I took a different line, which was fine to begin with. Gradually, it got more and more fraught and I was um, facing a lot of restriction in what I was allowed to do and being pushed in particular directions, particularly with the vaccine. Um, and then at the end of last year, I sent some tweets that were fairly um, angry at a doctor who was very pro lockdown. And uh, a big um, Twitter storm erupted, lots of blue tickers came and called for me to be sacked. And that's what happened. The paper sacked me um so i found myself you know suddenly uh unemployed um at 35 years old with three young children and a mortgage to pay and uh, it was quite daunting but at the same time i i kind of saw it coming i thought it was a possibility and part of me felt like it was a good thing or the right thing you know um like a, a, any national newspaper probably wasn't where my work belonged anymore. And now I'm working with the Democracy Fund, which is a Canadian charity. And I produce three cartoons a week. And I have uh, almost complete editorial freedom to do what I like. And part of the deal was that um, I offer all my work free to any publisher in the world. So anybody website, magazine, newspaper, blog, whatever it is, they can go on and download uh, my latest cartoon and, and put it in their publication, um, which is great because, you know, for me, the most important thing through this has just been getting the message to as many people as possible. Um, so, yeah, that's where I am now. I want to go back to something you said earlier about getting a, a, a gig at uh, The Guardian. And of course, that that the morning, what do you call them? The morning star, is that right? Morning star, yeah. And then you offered a position at the Telegraph. Now, the Telegraph is traditionally conservative. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to join those dots. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, my, uh, I suppose back then, um, 
I was fairly apolitical. I, I tended to be quite down the middle politically and I just loved drawing cartoons and I loved to be able to criticise whoever I felt deserved it on a given day, you know. So, um, I, I mean, a lot of cartoonists aren't like that or they don't start out like that either. They're, they're, most of them are very, very left-wing um, and would never dream of working for a paper like the Telegraph or the Daily Mail, no matter what money they offered them. But my view was, um, you know, just don't don't let my own politics come into it too much. That initially, that's what I used to think. And uh, if you can get a good regular gig, um, Telegraph. I didn't hate the Telegraph or anything. I thought it was fine. It was, uh, you know, had a good reputation and they'd done some good journalism. And um, actually, when I joined most of the people working on the comment desk which is who i dealt with directly were not the kind of characters you might expect to find at a right-wing conservative newspaper you know most of them were just really ordinary people um and they'd also worked all over the place and different papers left wing left wing right wing um so it was great and I learned so much in those early years, you know, because it. I, to be honest, I wasn't ready. I, you know, I was 25, and I was suddenly thrown into regular gig at a major publication. I had to go into the office and work at their cartoon desk, so you're in the newsroom, and you have to learn all about deadlines and readership and pleasing different editors and and the kind of the cycle of news. Um, so it was it was. Uh, exciting but hard those first few years and they really tested me you know early on um they were kind of saying no to my first five or six ideas regardless of how good they were just to kind of push me um but it was great i i sort of needed that because it's not something you can really train for um yeah i agree yeah uh, so, no, but the other cartoonists used to mock me a lot for making that kind of journey, Morningstar, Guardian, Telegraph, you know, they were like, there's not, there aren't many places left for you to go after this. Uh, and then, of course, now I kind of feel like the whole left-wing, right-wing dichotomy is totally false anyway, never really meant very much. I think I, think I find myself in the similar mindset as you um but there is something very liberating about being fired oh yeah there is um i mean the way it the way it happened uh was i you know first of all i was suspended pending investigation and um i wasn't allowed to talk to anyone from work and um i was told to kind of stay off social media and I had to go down to London for this um, inquiry hearing thing. And it was all people I'd never met. It was entirely the corporate side of the business. So it wasn't editors I'd worked with or anybody like that. And to be honest, I could have, I, I could probably have kept my job if I really wanted to, if I fought harder and, and sort of said the right things and, and made the right kind of apologies. Um, but I realized deep down, I didn't really want to stay there, you know, because I thought if I do manage to keep my job, I won't enjoy it ever again after this. And so 
it, yeah, it was scary, but also li liberating. And I thought, well, I, you know, I've been fired for essentially standing by my principles and for saying something. You know, the reason I sent those tweets was not even in my capacity as a commentator or a cartoonist. It was as a dad whose child was suffering as a direct result of what these people were advocating for. Mm. So you think, well, you've sacked a guy for essentially defending his own child whose safety and well-being is threatened by these people. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm better off out of it. That's What, what were what were those tweets? Uh, it was um, a doctor. There's a doctor in the UK called... Um, Rachel Clark, who is, I mean, and to be fair, she's not the worst um, culprit for this stuff, but, you know, she's just been from the start recommending lockdowns, calling for more, uh, telling teenagers they should go and get jabbed without telling their parents, that, that kind of stuff. And, you know, when you, you see these people online and, and it, it makes you very angry and nine times out of 10, you, 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 you type out a tweet or something and you think, no, leave it. And you put the phone down and go for a walk or something. And I think it was a particularly bad day. I was feeling even more angry than usual. And I, I didn't put the phone down. And she was um, whinging about how she'd been on the tube and people had verbally abused her for wearing a mask. And uh, I retweeted it and said something like you deserve verbal abuse for what you've done um you know and the and the the harm you've caused and it was one of these classic things where for the first 12 hours nothing happens and then the next day some blue tick follower of her of hers gets hold of it and starts sharing it and saying this is disgraceful and then they all pile in and they're calling for me to be sacked and uh I, I think I, I sent one back. She she saw it and tweeted at the Telegraph saying you need to fire this guy. He's uh, he's inciting harm against NHS workers. So I responded by um, <laughs> to, to that by tagging in the NHS saying you need to fire this woman because she's inciting harm with pretty much everything <laughs> she said for the last two years. And then she got lawyers involved and she was oh. trying to me. And um, yeah, it was it was bonkers. Um, but you didn't you didn't retract or delete. I had to delete them because it was one of those things where the Twitter suspended me you know, and okay. said you 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 got to delete them or you won't go back on. And I did. Uh, what I did was I uh, published an apology for it, which was a kind of non-apology, which you know, most people could see at the time where I basically explained why I'd said that and what I've been through and what thousands of other families like ours have been through. Um, and that, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to stop defending my own children. That's it. You know, uh, sorry, sorry if people get upset about that. How has that experience changed your perception on things um because i can tell you right now it would have it would have made me become harder yeah uh 
I th I mean I think I already realized before that happened that um, taking a position against all this was not a decision to take lightly you know that if you really wanted to oppose this properly um, people would come after you you'd lose a lot of friends you were going to lose support um, it was potentially dangerous for your career but I thought that you know there's no point in doing it half assed there's no no room for half measures you have to go all in and I guess I was already in a position where I I, I understood that I was never going to be able to do that if I stayed at the paper and when that happened and I lost my job I think that was the thing I thought well now um, whatever happens I've got to get myself to into a position where I can just turn it up to 11 and go for it every time um because yeah i mean obviously like you say it, it it ignited a real fire in my belly and made me even more determined to call these people out and wake more people up and um yeah be but that's noticeable that's noticeable in your work. Uh, your work oh, yeah. is certainly darker and angrier than it was, say, in 2020. But I, you know, I said I say this to people. Um, it's one of the weird things that's happened, and and, it, and I saw it happening when I was still at the paper with colleagues, where people at the beginning or, or nearer to the beginning were much more aligned and in agreement of how wrong all this was and how mad and worrying and dangerous. But, you know, it's like time, in some ways, time is their greatest weapon, the people doing this, because they know that most people just can't sustain that anger and disgust and despair for too long. So after a while, people start walking back on things, you know, and they'll, they'll say things like, oh, I'm used to wearing a mask now, you know, it doesn't bother me so much. It's just, or, or um well, you're never going to be able to prove X and Y about the deaths or the tests or whatever it is. Um, and it's all going to be over soon now. And, you know, you have this thing where pe people just uh, want to let it go. They don't, they don't. And my view was always, if the thing is still going on and you're six months down the line, you should also escalate your response to it, you know, not de-escalate your position and that's been my thing throughout if, if if they're unrelenting if they're only getting worse more extreme and more tyrannical uh my work should reflect that my work should be more angry it should be more um desperate and dark because it reflects the times we're in but so many people yeah. want to deny that you know i agree with you and it's something that i've also uh, encountered uh, over the years with people um, the idea that because you're a cartoonist you're supposed to be funny all the time you know you're the jester you're a clown why why aren't you laughing you know and the yeah. irony the irony is that satire is often born out of anger yeah exactly um and it, and it's not that you do, i mean i i, I still I still have a real um, a natural drive to thinking of gags, you know, and making people laugh. It's still what I want to do, and occasionally I can still do it, but there, I, I suppose there'll always be a, a very dark twist on it. Um, but 
it's uh you know it doesn't have to be there for it to be satire it doesn't have to make people laugh you know it, it can a lot of my stuff now is more designed to to shock people or um make them slightly afraid or sometimes make them cry you know like a really emotional gut punch um because this this thing we do it, it sort of has a unique power to potentially break the spell i think um so you've got to you've got to kind of embrace all facets of it you, you know if you just focus on doing jokes it's not enough i don't yeah what do you think is the purpose of satire well i mean i still think that by and large it's because people there are people in the world who who want power who want positions of authority and you know very often they're the wrong kinds of people and they're driven by ego and they're the the types of people who don't like laughing at themselves or being laughed at um and there's always a danger even in the the kind of freest most if uh, most most kind of genuine democracies that these people will try and grab too much power and overreach and the main point of satire is to always have that little voice whispering in their ear of of, of you know we can still laugh at you we think you're ridiculous you're not as great as you think you are and um it, 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 the fact that that's allowed uh acts as a kind of counterbalance and it's not always just the effect it has on those in charge it's for the rest of the public we, you know when they see that when they see somebody being mocked and laughed at it's it can be a great source of comfort to them i think um you know i i i, I don't understand why so many satirists have not uh taken up the call with this you know that this is the mm. biggest example in history of people with too much power wanting more power and, and using their or, or abusing their power and our job is to point that out and and instead most you know most other cartoonists have produced uh, supplementary propaganda for their governments that's all they've done establishment stuff yeah yeah it's weird though. Why do you think that has happened? I, I still can't figure it out. I mean, even my own fellow cartoonists in South Africa are largely pro-establishment hack jobs. I think that, I mean, with this, when, when the pandemic fast began, immediately it was, it was made out to be, um, more a scientific issue and a, and a public health issue than a political issue. I mean, I this is difficult because I don't. I never really saw it as a political issue either. It's kind of an all-encompassing moral issue. It's about humanity and what's right and what's wrong, like the really basic stuff. But because certainly in the UK, all the parties were united in the fundamental position of we have to do something and we have to do the most extreme bonkers immoral thing possible um because we're being told to by this kind of 
clutch of sinister virgin scientists. Um, I think the cartoonists thought, well, we can't criticize this because it's not. Maybe they were, maybe they were taken by surprise or something. It was like um, they weren't sure how to react, so they just thought we better go along with it. I, I don't know. I mean, I at the Telegraph actually initially um, for the first kind of eight months of this, I had a lot of freedom and support from my colleagues and editors. Um, and, you know, and I said early on, look, I I know that it's tricky arguing the science and the data and stuff. But for me, there's there's no moral argument for doing this at all. You know, it's really clear cut. It's just morally disgusting. And they agreed and they said, yeah, you know, you can focus on that. You can do that in your work. So I was lucky because I don't think cartoonists at other newspapers would have had that freedom anyway even if they wanted to um but the moment it changed was the vaccine basically when the vaccine stuff started it was uh you know they they kind of tried to rein me in and say okay you've got to change tack now um i remember in 2020 uh now you're gonna laugh because my story is almost the same but i was uh drawing for the largest Afrikaans newspaper in South Africa. Yeah. Um, Afrikaans being the other major language here. And, yeah, yeah. And I was fired also for a tweet. Right. <laughs> uh, what Sometimes what people don't get is that, you know, I, I felt so angry with people who don't get it the people who go along with it you know people who insist on wearing masks and testing themselves and testing their children and things and i uh i i don't really want to spend much time with those people now you know and i feel very angry with them but still the reason i fought so hard and i'm still fighting is because i still don't want them to live in this world either you know like even if I'm not friends with them anymore and I may not want to see them again, I'm kind of, it's, it's like they, they think they want to go to the place we're being pushed to and that that's the big mistake. And like, you're not, when you get there, you're not going to want to be there. So I'm going to keep doing what I can to, to save you from that fate. Um, it's a difficult balance because, and, and that's maybe an argument for why you should try and control the anger sometimes. But then it's also this thing of narrative. You know, I, I think part of the reason that some of us cartoonists and some other creative people get this is, is partly because we're kind of experts in narrative. You know, we, we understand communication and storytelling, which is kind of the most ancient and important art form we have as a species, right? We wouldn't really be human if we'd never told stories. And that ability to recognize early on, hang on, this is a false narrative. This narrative has so many holes, it doesn't make any sense at all. But beyond that, you can you could also see that there was a narrative that made sense and it was mm. horrible and so we entered into this battle for the narrative you know that's basically the best way of summing up what i've been doing for two and a half years is is trying to put across the other narrative in picture form you know i think 
Yeah, I think your work now is the best ever. Do you do you feel the same? Um for compared to what I was doing before, you mean? My work. Yeah. Uh yeah, because it's the thing is it's a hundred percent me now. That, mm. you know, it's, it's entirely a reflection of who I am and how I see the world and what I want to say. Whereas it's never, if you work for a newspaper, it, it's never really going to be that. Yeah. Okay, Bob, I, I've got, actually, when I say Bob, I think of an old person. Do you get that a lot? <laughs> yeah. Uh, all the time. All the time. <laughs> Do people think you're old? Yeah, everybody. <laughs> Every time I put a photo of myself online or do an interview, the first sort of five or six responses are, oh, my God, I thought you were an 80-year-old man. <laughs> cheers to that. Oh, uh, yeah. And, uh, uh, how old are you, Jim? Um, f- what am I? 42, 43. Okay. I can't but remember that's now. still quite young for a cartoonist. I mean, you know, most cartoonists are quite old, I suppose. Um, <laughs> and, and especially when I you know, when I work for the Telegraph as well, uh, and most of the readership, like their average age is about 85 or something. Yes. And your name is Bob, and you're just a, a name on the comment pages of the Telegraph, they automatically assume that you're one of them. And um, actually, some of my colleagues said at the beginning, that's good. Like, don't let them know that you're young, because they <laughs> might not like your work as much. You know, let them pretend that you're this... And Bob's uh, not even, it's not even a pseudonym. No, it's not. That's, uh, sometimes people write to me and say, you know, what does it stand for? Um, what is it? B-O-B. A really funny one was, I, I don't know if this was a joke or, um, or, or someone being serious, but uh, somebody commented once that, you know, this guy is clearly controlled opposition uh, Illuminati because Bob is the number 101 with 33 <laughs> over the top. <laughs> and the way I sign my name is like, it's just, you know, almost like I'm deliberately highlighting the 33. Don't you um, hate that phrase, controlled opposition? I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> I want to break the door off the hinge when I hear it. I mean, there's so much paranoia now, which I kind of understand, but sometimes you think that like, some people are going to get to a point where they only trust their dog or something. Being <laughs> yeah. Everyone yes. ends up being controlled opposition <laughs> or chill. Um, yeah, I, I, even like Dellingpole gets it all the time as well. Yes. Um, even, so us, the, even us yeah. saying it now, nah, uh, they're controlled opposition because they're talking about controlled opposition. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, well, it's subversion classic. within subversion within subversion. <laughs> it's double bluff of the controlled <laughs> um, um, yeah, The Bob thing, uh, yes. just qu- I'll just quickly explain that I hated being called Bob. Uh, I was always Rob when I was younger, and um, it was... Uh, when I was about 14 at school, you know, when you have a new teacher at school and they like do the register and they'll check, do you know, what do you like to be called? Um, although now they probably say, what are your pronouns? But um, back then they would say, oh, you do you like Rob or Robert? And I just said to this one teacher, I don't mind as long as you don't call me Bobby. So then for the rest of the year, he called me Bobby. Everyone else called me Bobby. And then it got shortened to Bob. And so I've, I've always been Bob ever since. What I was going to ask you is give me a day in the life 
of Bob Moran. Okay. Um, and obviously include some of your cartoon type stuff because that would in, that's also what interests me. Yeah. I'd, yeah, I'll give you a day when I'm working. Not uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> like um, like not a Sunday. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, I I live out in the countryside, and I've got um, like I suppose you call it a small holding with about three and a half acres. So we got some chickens, and uh, I did have some pigs. I don't have any pigs at the moment. They're in the freezer, but probably get some. <laughs> And uh, I got a thousand sausages to get through, so uh, you know I'm ready for the food crisis. Um, Good man. And, uh, I also have three children. They're not in the freezer. They're. Um, <laughs> ooh, ooh, my, that was dark. <laughs> <laughs> my um, eldest is nine. A, a daughter who's nine, and I've got a boy who's seven, and another daughter who's one and a half. Um, so uh, the day usually starts quite early because the children get up early, and um, I'll go and uh, feed my chickens, um, feed the pigs if I've got any, and we'll have breakfast. Um, I used to listen to the radio, but I don't do that anymore. I'll probably look at social media channels and try and um, think about what's going on. Um, then I'll come up here to my studio, which is in the attic, um, which is a great space, and I can lock the door um, so I don't get disturbed by little people. And uh, oh, we're we're homeschooling now, so we don't do a a school run anymore that's been uh, nearly a year we've been doing that and um we have tutors come to the house to teach which is great well it's hard you know it's a it's a hard thing to adjust to but um really pleased we we did that and yeah i'll um just it, it was different obviously when i was at the paper uh I'd have to get the Telegraph newspaper and really focus on what the issues were that day and and then think about what will the readers think about this? What will my editor want me to do? Uh, and, and I have to do a load of sketches and send them in and phone them and check it was okay. But now it's just down to me. I'll just kind of get out some paper and start sketching. Uh, sometimes I might already have an idea that I thought up the night before or something. And um, yeah, I'll do I'll do a sketch to plan my piece, um, and then I go and um, get out my proper watercolor paper pad and draw it up properly, and then I ink it with um, Indian ink, and I use a brush, not a dip pen, because I just I worked out about ten years ago that. Uh, I love drawing with the brush. It's a. Um, I always wanted to be. Do you do you use a, a dip pen? Uh, not or, professionally anymore. Only for hobby. Um, it's it's just uh, it, it was just too slow and tedious. Um, your work has that very stabby, aggressive. Um, loose. Mm. I I always wanted to get that. But it just never suited my style. So it's difficult. Uh, it requires it requires a lot of confidence because. Yeah, it takes a long time to draw like a five-year-old. 
Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. And um, I used to love watching um, Gerald Scarf work with his pen, you know, on these massive pieces of paper and just flick the ink and do these long, flowing lines. And um, I could never, I could never get it like that. And then I realised it wasn't really how how I drew anyway. Um, so yeah, I I paint my ink on. Uh, and then I use watercolor inks to paint it, which is gives quite um punchy kind of concentrated color. Um, and so I do I do the whole thing by hand. It's all it's all traditionally done and finished. And then I scan it in, and I'll just put it through Photoshop and kind of tweak the colors and clean it up a bit to get it looking like as close to the original as I can. Um, and then I'll I'll tweet it and and sometimes it's like throwing a grenade into a, <laughs> into a small room. <laughs> and how many hours does that take you? Um, it varies a bit. Uh, and now I mean, so part of the the thing now because I don't have the the tight deadlines anymore. So it used to be that I had to get I'd start at nine o'clock and I had to have something finished by half past six that evening. Um. Now, if I want to, I can spend a couple of days on something and take a bit longer. But but generally, I still do them in about six hours, start to finish. Um, yeah. Charles Schultz said in an interview, I think back in the 1980s, that a cartoonist is the bottom of the pile when it comes to artists. Um, yeah. And the and and there's a reason why cartoons are never exhibited in the Louvre. Uh, I, I remember him saying that, and then I think the Louvre took him up on that challenge and did an exhibition of Charlie Brown and Peanuts, etc. Oh uh, yeah, I think I remember reading do, that. Yeah. Do you consider yourself an artist or a journalist? Yeah, it's hard because I know what you mean, and, and instinctively, I think cartoonists feel like they're not supposed to be included in that category and don't really like calling yourself an artist because it implies a kind of preciousness and fartiness about your work which you can't afford to have obviously if you're working for newspapers you know it's one of the things you've got to be okay with somebody ripping your work apart or changing the words and all kinds of stuff like that but um uh, and you are working in part as a journalist. You're essentially doing the same thing as a journalist, but just using images instead of words. And and quite a few cartoonists start out as journalists and then start drawing later on. Uh, now, I've, I feel like some of the stuff I'm doing now occasionally comes closer. It's kind of knocking on the door of that artist category, but... I don't know. It's one of those things you, I kind of want other people to say. I don't. Uh, I wouldn't want to call myself an artist. No. But when you when you're sitting down in front of that paper, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? I mean, are you? Is it first the idea or is it first the artwork in in your experience? Um, it really it really varies quite a lot. Sometimes sometimes you think of something you really want to say like um, and it's getting harder because it's been going on for so long you know, 
worry about have I said everything is there anything left but you think of oh that would be a really good comment or that's a great comparison to make and then it's it's like how do I work that into an image how do I make it work and the thing is some stuff just doesn't work as an image and I, I get sometimes people will suggest ideas to me and it's like it's a great idea spoken out loud but you think that won't work as an image is too complicated it's too hard to read visually um so sometimes you might have an idea and you play around and, and you give up because you can't really make it work but other times you, you kind of you have i suppose you have a vague idea of an issue um but you'll just start i'll just start sketching and see what comes out and some of my most uh successful pieces of being like that like I, do you know the stand firm one with the, the demon mm. uh, holding the the syringe yeah that one was so kind of instinctive and um it was just a kind of raw emotional response i just scribbled scribbled that basic image really fast on a piece of paper without really thinking about what i was doing yes um, you know and, it, and it, <clears> so excuse hard, me that's such a hard thing to you can't really force yourself to do that you know if i could i'd I'd do it every time but um it just kind of happens i don't know part of me wonders if if uh, it came entirely from me or if i was you know channeling something else i don't know don't you hate that though when you spend 20 minutes on a cartoon and it becomes your most popular work um, and, yeah. and the one and the one that took you seven hours gets bombed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's often the case. Uh, and the stuff, often the the stuff you think maybe hasn't really worked as well, people love. And then something else that you're really pleased with because there's something you know just clever that you've done. It doesn't bomb, but it just doesn't really take like the others do uh it's a it's a mystery uh so this is this is me projecting but Mm. when it comes to uh getting a second opinion on your work how important is your wife (laughs) (laughs) i shall laugh if she sees this My wife is that because my wife um, does quite a lot of work with me now because I'm I'm hopeless at admin stuff and replying to emails, as you probably found out. And uh, like what? No. (laughs) People um, (laughs) order prints and things. And and, um, so my wife deals with all of that side of of stuff. And and because she's brilliant. She's the opposite of me. She's so organized and. um, um she actually thinks about making money as well i mean if it wasn't for her i I would never make any money because i'm just not i don't think like that uh so she's up here a lot so she'll always kind of see what i'm doing and uh she doesn't she she i'm i'm quite a harsh critic of myself but i feel like she's probably even harsher like it has to be has to be really funny or really poignant for her to kind of go, oh, I like that. That's good. You know, that's kind of one of the, you know, that's one of the best things you've ever done. 
Um, and yeah. uh, <laughs> and they're not exactly they're, they're not delicate. She'll look at it and go, "Yeah, that's nice." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you know, and you know exactly what she means. <laughs> but more often than not, it will be it will be something more along the lines. I don't of, get it. How or, no? Or, how long do you think that's going to take you? Because <laughs> you know, I've we got this thing at five, or <laughs> someone's coming around door. <laughs> Do you still get that when people say you to you, you, might, you? Think you could do that in black and white today? Maybe. <laughs> do Do you get that um, that 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 situation where, where people ask you what you do and you say, "Well, I draw cartoons," and they and they say, "Oh, that's nice." And what do you do during the day? Yeah, um, I I don't get that so much now, but maybe that's because I don't see a lot of the people that I used to see. <laughs> um, but yeah, I suppose people always assume it's a hobby, you know. Uh, and it's funny though now I guess this comes back to the thing about people thinking I'm old and I meet people um, I meet people who are on our side you know in all the groups and, and like on Telegram and on your Telegram group and Dellingpole's Del- Telegram group and you know and I'll meet them somewhere in public and introduce myself and they won't say anything they won't make the connection um and then the next time i see them they'll they'll be all apologetic and go oh my god i didn't realize that was you um because they have a completely different idea of who bob is you know um and i guess that's now with all these different platforms you know i'll put my stuff out and it just goes all around all over the place and becomes part of the i don't know what you call it the the meme sphere the kind of that mimetic uh universe where to an extent it's just another meme people are posting up and and so it's not like being in a newspaper where people will go who's what's that name who's that by oh yeah he's in it every week it's i don't think everyone always takes time to see who did that because of course most most memes like the kind of digital photograph memes, they're not signed. It, it doesn't say who made it a lot of the time. Um, so that, I don't know what you, what, what's your kind of, what's your take on the whole meme thing? Because I find it tricky because, I, I mean, it's generally a good thing, but it's quite challenging for yeah, proper cartoonists. I mean, that sounds arrogant, but you know what I mean? Well, yes, it, it kind of demeans what you do because somebody yep. somebody does a really bad Photoshop job um and it gets 500 million views yeah and and sometimes they will you know because they can do it so fast they'll they'll mm. kind of get it first and you'll think oh, i was gonna do that but i can't now because and I th- yeah i i think it's become such a huge part of this movement and and without that going on maybe i i, I don't think i would have got as well known as i have Mm. um without that going on as well so um yeah it's tricky i mean i I see it as it just kind of it's an extra challenge it just means you've got to push yourself a bit harder and because this you know you realize there's stuff they can't do that we can so focus on that i guess yeah i think so too um i was going to ask you though has the COVID era um changed your perception on not just 
cartooning, but just the world around you. And do you think that that, that effect is permanent? Uh, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I've, uh, I've let go of an awful lot of, um, handholds, you know, uh, um, safety nets, whatever you want to call it, all these, all these kind of securities that we thought were around us, you know, in the world. Um, I know I can rely on that. I know that that's true. Um, these, these sort of pillars, I guess, holding up our reality, uh, you gradually go through a process of realizing most of them are made of polystyrene and, and it's hard. Um, it's really hard, but like my view on this is, or, or I came to the realization, you know, I guess you go through that initial thing of this is mad. This is immoral. This specific thing makes no sense. And then you begin to understand that it's connected to all these other things. And suddenly that idea that's always been kind of core to the denial of conspiracy theories of would they just wouldn't do that or that's too big a conspiracy to be possible suddenly goes out the window you know because you kind of think after this after they've done this so uh blatantly you know it's not this was not even a conspiracy theory really right it was it wasn't hidden they 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 were just standing up and saying here's what we're doing and um you think if if this is possible then pretty much anything is possible now that doesn't mean that i kind of now believe everything i see on bitshoot or whatever but uh you have an entirely open mind about most things and it's it's kind of i heard something the other day where somebody said it's not so much about um taking a position of of saying here's what's true it's more about pointing out to people here's what we can be fairly certain is not true Mm. you know and i think that's really where i am now yeah me too here's what we know is not true and I sort of feel like to an extent you where we are now in this p- progression of all this you've got to be willing to let go of all of it and there are mm. so many people and and the the queen thing is such a good example of this that so many people still want to have one thing they can cling to and, and there are loads of people on our side who were brilliant on lockdowns and vaccines and so many other things, but they can't let go of the queen. It's like they've chosen the queen as their one thing that they still want to be wholesome and good and genuine. And it's really divisive. It's, it's a really interesting one for kind of people on our side. Um, I don't, I don't understand it myself, you know, I find it really confusing, but um, loads of people are sort of genuinely celebrating the the queen and saying that she was great. And I I think it's partly that thing of they can't let go of everything. They have to keep one thing they can they can have a hold on. And which I understand to an extent, it's really difficult. 
um because what do you have left like where do you go once you yeah. let go of this stuff but i mean paradoxically have you not found that through all of that you've also reinforced uh, a, a perhaps a set of values that now determine your decision making yeah but that's i mean the interesting thing about that is um the i didn't know that i cared so much about these values and principles before this started you know if you'd spoken to me like three i suppose three or four years ago um and told me oh this is going to happen and you're going to be so passionately against it that you will end up losing your job and, and risking your whole career and taking just a you know shitload of abuse every day and and put yourself through all this because it matters that much to you i just ah oh, no i don't reckon i'd do that that doesn't sound like me i didn't i didn't know i suppose um because nothing like this had happened it wasn't meant to be possible so you you were never put in a position where it was challenged were you before and it's um it's a great comfort i suppose knowing that actually yeah this is uh i care a lot about this stuff and it informs all my work and it it gives it a lot more purpose you know i, I kind of feel now like i I was probably never meant to be a, a cartoonist in a newspaper for my whole career. I was meant to be doing this stuff, you know, about freedom and humanity and civil liberties and um, producing work for kind of everyone and a sort of global picture rather than just focusing on boring domestic politics. Um, yeah, it's it's a real. Uh, I don't know exactly where my career will go from here anymore. You know, I don't have that set path anymore. But it's very exciting because I feel a lot more sure of who I am and why I'm doing the work I'm doing. Do you enjoy being an outlier? Um, and I I ask that because I think I'm also an outlier. So yeah. Um, yeah um overall i'd say yes um because you know the truth the truth is all that matters and uh i'm only an outlier because my the, the truth i'm trying to give to people is currently very controversial um, I mean, I, I suppose I've always had a rebellious streak. I've always, um, I've always been a, a bit, um, predisposed to breaking rules and, um, not really liking authority and, uh, I, I you know, I've, I've, I've been tended to be a bit controversial at times and um not afraid to say what i think but then that was kind of more playful and there was 
less high stakes. Now it sort of feels quite serious. It's not just being an outlier as in an outlier within your little group or your little industry. It's sort of an outlier um, in the whole of society. You're kind of put in this category of uh, conspiracy theorist, uh, dangerous pusher of misinformation. And um, there are, you know, there are, there are people who I don't know if you have this, but, you know, certain individuals just really seem to campaign hard against you and won't leave you alone. And um, that's not always enjoyable, you know. But like I said before, um, I knew it was going to happen. That's when you choose to do something like this. But being a cartoonist, Bob, is it's also, it's not just a job it's who you are um and cart and cartooning is sort of the it's sort of the punk rock of the art world it's meant to be uh the court jester it's meant to be the the thermometer of of acceptability it's meant to be uh holding the mirror up yeah exactly um we're we're meant to constantly test the boundaries for what's permissible you know how far can free speech go um and it's got complicated though i think because there was a when it was just newspapers and magazines and there was no internet there was um there was a kind of a, a formal arena in which this could take place, which was exactly like equivalent to the court and where you have a jester in the court who can behave differently to everyone else who's allowed to say things to the king that no one else is allowed to say in that specific place. And the newspaper page acted like the court, the royal court or the magazine page. And so the kind of... Um, the the whole thing functioned in that space and then with the internet it got blown apart you know there's no court anymore and so if anyone can be a jester this is coming back to the meme thing you know everyone can be a satirist now and so the rules change and, and to an extent you you lose the protection i think people have forgotten about the jester thing now and um they don't recognize that we always had people who we designated to be jesters, to push the boundaries, to say the unacceptable things. Um, and and, and I, I think that's why that's why satire has uh, partly why satire is very unhealthy at the moment. And it's why people like us are being seen labeled as dangerous and pushed out and um uh but if you know i think the only way to bring it back is to keep doing what we're doing and just and, and keep pushing it regardless because if we stop if if all the satirists just um fall in line and comply with the authority and then um 
you'll lose it and i don't think it's something you can ever get back i don't mm-hmm. i don't think it's something you could ever reintroduce at a later date <laughs> what are your holy cows what won't you touch still um i don't know if i've got any anymore i don't uh what wouldn't i what wouldn't i do um i can't think of anything i mean that the one the one sort of restriction i have at the moment with my work is it has to be in some way related to the theme of human rights and civil liberties okay so right right now that's pretty much everything that's going on but there's some things obviously lie outside of that uh i don't I don't know. What about you? What like say some things you wouldn't touch and maybe I agree. Um I, I think I still wouldn't touch Muhammad. I tried it once upon a time oh, yeah. and yeah. and I it's it's not it's not a hill that I want to die on. Um and the okay, so I think there's a disclaimer that's required here. It's not that I'm not a Muslim, so I don't have a dog in that fight, but mm. There are certain things that if you draw or speak about, the reaction is going to be so overwhelming that the message that you're trying to portray gets lost. Mm. So the mere depiction of Muhammad just just destroys whatever it is that you're trying to say. So it might have spent you four you might have spent four hours drawing the cartoon and that doesn't matter anymore. Um and I mean, yeah. I remember. I, I, do you remember South Park? Once upon a time, tried that, and they 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 had they had Muhammad inside a bear suit. Inside a bear, yeah, and it turned out not to be Muhammad in there. <laughs> it's really, really brilliant way of doing it, and and it, it made a an interesting point about the whole thing. But I suppose I agree with the Muhammad thing, and it's because uh, um, really. The, the only reason now to draw a cartoon of Muhammad is because you're not supposed to draw a cartoon of Muhammad and people have said you shouldn't. That's the only point you can really make with it. And you kind of think, is there any other reason to draw a cartoon of Muhammad? I can't, I can't think of a good reason beyond just deliberately uh, trying breaking to piss off, yeah, trying to, trying to piss right, off trying people. Trying to annoy people, yeah. And they, mm. I think there should always be more behind your reason for producing something than just insulting someone or making them angry and with the Mohammed thing it's like that's that is the only reason for doing it well when i was at university i wrote my um dissertation all about the the danish Mohammed cartoons because it was it was like a year or so after that had happened i met the editor oh you did of, of yellen's posted mm. yeah okay oh wow i bet that was interesting Great I mean, guy. he, because it was unclear at the time um, what his motivation had been for actually commissioning the cartoons in the first place. Um, and, but I, I mean, I think the, 
one of the really interesting things about that whole story was that uh, the cartoons they actually published were not really the ones that generated the anger. Um, these uh, Muslim um, sheikhs, or, or uh, was it sheikhs? They basically supplemented them, didn't they, with like really horrific stuff and then took them around different countries and, and those were the ones that, that um, stirred up all the trouble. But it's, uh, yeah, I, it's hard because I, instinctively you feel like nobody tells me what I can and can't draw. You yeah. Know? But at the same time you think, but what's actually the point? I, I mean, I don't even know if it's, it's only censoring yourself to the extent that discarding crap ideas is also censoring yourself, right? I mean, it, it's not, it's that thing of, but, but this is not a good cartoon. This this doesn't qualify as a good cartoon for the very reason that all it's doing is annoying people. And I think with the Mohammed thing as well, it's not even as if when you put out a Mohammed cartoon, and I'm not sure that most non-Muslims feel really empowered and kind of applaud it. I, I think they just, they also think, why have you done that? Um, because I did a, I don't know if you've seen, I did a Where's Trudeau when the trucker thing was going on. You know when the trucker I did see it. started. I, it was Trudeau great, great question. And, and I thought about maybe I don't put him in it as well as a, as a, like a, a joke. He's not even there because the whole <laughs> thing was he's run away. Um, but I thought no, because the, the blackface thing is too much of a gift, um, not to put it in. And then, and then it was interesting because a lot of people in this country have still not actually seen those photographs of Trudeau. Uh, so they still didn't get it. They were, where is he? And other people were saying, he's here. You know, it's this guy. And they're like, why, why is he drawn him like that? It's really weird. And then somebody shares the actual photo and they can't believe it. And they're going, hang on, why is he still in charge if he did that? <laughs> I don't get it. Do you wake up happy? Someone asked me that the other day, uh, or they said, "What would it, what would it take for you to wake up happy?" Um, and I, again, I asked that as a form of form of projection because when you yeah. when you when you draw so many cartoons and you're so caught up in ridicule and um, mocking and you know these are all fairly negative, aggressive tools. Yeah, uh, it yeah. becomes it becomes part of you. It's not a job. No, you you. That's very true. Um, it's it's hard, but you know, like I said earlier about escalating your stance and recognizing this for what it is, which is, in my view, one of the worst periods of human history ever and one of the most heinous crimes against humanity ever committed. And so waking up every day and remembering you're living through that is, is hard. But you have to you have to be really careful because and I, I've had friends, I know people really close to me who kind of, I think, reached a point where they couldn't, they just couldn't deal with that anymore. They couldn't deal with waking up every day feeling like that. So they've they've sort of deliberately uh, turned away from it, and they haven't gone to the other side or anything. But they've just 
stop focusing on it. And I guess if you do, if it's not your job, you can, you know, but it's my job. And I also feel like I have a responsibility to keep producing the work and, and reflecting um, things as the way people see it. You're mm. away. Uh, my work helps me. I mean, doing the cartoons helps me deal with a lot of the frustration and, and upset. And I guess, um, like if I don't draw for a week or something, I'll, I'll actually get more unhappy, you know, even though I probably haven't looked at Twitter as much, I haven't really been following things for that week. I'll start to feel more down because, um, I haven't had that outlet, haven't had that kind of cathartic process of drawing, mm. you know. I mean, the be- like on days when I put out a cartoon, I go to bed very happy because I feel like I've done something, you know, and I've released some of that energy, and that's really good. But um, I, I, I feel like. Um, there's, this has a long way to run still. Like we're, we're only on about chapter three of about 40 or something, you know, and uh, it's going to get worse. It's going to get a lot harder. And so I think, yeah, you have to you have to stay positive, but you can't. I guess I don't want to force myself to wake up happy by telling myself that everything's Mm. fine when it isn't, you know, I mean, I've always been, I've always been fairly good at coping with, um, being angry, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and some people, uh, yeah. Yeah, Today, today I'm a happy angry. Yeah. That's, that's the thing is it's weird. Like some days you, you just, want to kind of take the piss out of it all and laugh Mm. and then other days you don't quite you you don't quite feel like you're able to do that and it's just kind of genuine anger and frustration i mean i've had a hard day i found this the the um queen's funeral thing difficult today Uh, and the mood and um there's a weird energy around because of it and I just felt I put this cartoon out today, which is kind of the best reflection as I could come up with for my feelings about just the the um, misappropriation of the grief, you know, grief in the wrong direction. Um, all of this sorrow and emotion and all these tears where like there have been none throughout all of this as all of these awful wicked things have happened and i just thought you know in some ways this is like a festival to just celebrate all these horrible things that have happened and 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 obviously all the very worst people alive have come together in under one roof today as well which is another odd an odd thing to have happened um so yeah it's it it varies doesn't it i mean 
it's hard to um it's hard to stay funny all the time and positive and and mock it um if I, if I didn't have my family it'd be much harder i mean i'm well, lucky that, yeah. that i've got my children to you know brighten up my life and make me forget you have to forget that's a great thing if you've got children you have to forget yes because um they occupy your time and and you just and you don't want to be a miserable git as well as a dad so you have well, for to what love. it's worth if you if you follow the uh the deep truther movement uh today is all theater and the queen died years ago <laughs> Yeah, I mean, um, no, no, I'm I'm quite open to that idea. Uh, I'm, I'm quite open. To that. I, I did, but this is the thing, Jim. Don't you think it's it's like uh, okay? So she's ninety. She was ninety six, but basically, for any point in the last six years, she could have died. Right? It was quite like. Okay, but. So for the two years when none of what happened today would have been possible, you know, no one could have come here. Uh, they couldn't have done all the parades, none, none of it. Um, she just happened to live through all that. And then it's only once all the travel restrictions and everything's relaxed and everyone's forgotten. And, she, and she's just done a changeover of prime minister. And then sort of hours later, oh, she's dead. She's dead and we can do the whole thing. Because she's died at exactly the right time. Uh, it's going to get to a point where surely people are going to start to recognise that <laughs> none of this stuff seems organic and random. It's yes. And now we're saying this is finished. And oh, a war's started. And now the war's started. And oh, the Queen's dead. And now that we've done the Queen's death. And oh, now there's no food. And nothing is, it's all in sequence. It's just coincidence, so Bob. Yeah, it's a coincidence. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I just, I think as well, you know, the so much of this over the past couple of years has been not just theatre, but but like ritual, you know, performative, tricking people into these absurd performative acts that are that are kind of without them realizing it. They're, they're pledging their kind of allegiance to this dark force, this this horrible crime that's being committed. You know, it's uh, the, the the masks and the washing of hands and standing apart and, and all the words and the things they got people to say to each other and the posters up everywhere. And, you know, in this country, we have people outside their houses clapping for the healthcare workers. And it's like, you, you know, you're not that far off a Mayan temple here with someone tossing a severed head down the steps yeah. and all applauding. And for me, this whole thing this week with the queen and people queuing for hours to walk past this coffin and you think for, for it to fit with everything else they've done, that coffin is either empty or, or like, you know, it's got a, a goat in it or something like it's, it's uh it's this thing of, deliberately getting people to partake in these kind of weird weird rituals that you think if you could stop yourself and actually think about what you're doing you you just you wouldn't be able to explain it why are you doing it and it's isn't it weird though i mean you wouldn't have found yourself talking like this three years ago i no. mean what is i mean okay let me ask the question differently have you found yourself in the last two years suddenly going onto the internet 
and searching for something that you otherwise would never have searched. Let me let me give you an example. I oh, yeah. never in my life thought, never, never in my life thought that I would actually go onto the internet and search, is Earth flat? <laughs> no, me neither. I've done that. Uh, and what did you discover? Uh, and are dinosaurs real? Uh, <laughs> do nuclear weapons exist? Uh, some, there's some really weird ones. Uh, is Michelle Obama a man? Uh, and you know what's funny about that? Um, uh, what's her name? Uh, the, the, uh, Joan Rivers. She called it oh, years ago. Didn't she? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Do you think we'll ever have a gay president? We got yes. one. We got one now. Um, I, I, because my thing is, did men land on the moon? Yeah. Enter. <laughs> yeah, but then my my thing now is, I hear people. Oh, oh there's lots of podcasts and different things that uh, people I think are really interesting and I'll hear them talking about you know what's happening now and they might sometimes they'll mention something else and like you say in the past I'd have probably thought oh this guy's a lunatic I'll stop listening to him and I would never it would never have crossed my mind to look into it but now I'm just interested to begin with just because I don't I've never even heard of that theory so I just want to know what all these people are talking about because and then decide for myself, you know, what I make of it. But some of these things, uh, I mean, a lot of them you come away thinking, yeah, there's some really interesting stuff there and there's some questions, but I don't, I don't know. Um, like the flat earth thing, people say it's like, you know, it's sort of end of the line conspiracy theory, right? When you've gone, gone through everything else. It's the boss level. It's boss level. Yeah. <laughs> you've reached the end of that, you've reached the end of the internet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The thing with that is hard. To, I struggle. I struggle with that to to see the immediate relevance in a way to the stuff that's confronting us in right now. Uh, maybe maybe it's connected in in ways I don't. Maybe I just don't understand enough about the theory of it. Um, but. Uh, uh, some other things you look at, I mean, the moon landings one is interesting. I don't know how much you've looked. I think you've looked quite a lot at the moon mm. landings. You've had some people on here mm. talking about it. And again, it's that thing. Once you actually look into it, which the majority of people would never consider doing, you realize almost straight away, there's a hell of a lot here that doesn't make any sense. Yes. There's an awful lot of questions here that have never been answered there's so much to be suspicious of and it doesn't necessarily mean we didn't go to the moon although you can't i, I think no no we didn't we didn't go we didn't go to the moon we never went to the moon uh, because it, i think it's entirely possible that we can't Correct. Um, but you you just think actually there is so obviously some kind of conspiracy here. And th it's surprising how often that's the case. When you actually look into something, you, you, you realize that this is quite obvious. Like it's not even very well hidden. All they've done to hide it is to call the people asking the questions mad. I and mean, they didn't need to do anything else. 
Um, you know, the same with JFK. I guess if JFK, I guess, is, uh, you know, starter level, if flat earth is boss level, you know, most people start at JFK. It's the kind of most normie conspiracy, it's entry level conspiracy theory, isn't it? <laughs> um, entry level. <laughs> entry level. Is that more than any other is just, you know, within 30 seconds, you're, you're like, no. Lee Harvey Oswald, no, like there's no way. Yes, and um, and it's almost accepted, but it's sort of almost universally accepted. As you know, um, it's not controversial. It seems to say that that was a conspiracy theory. Uh, But yeah, some of the others aren't aren't any less um, obvious. I would say. Bob, to to sort of answer your question, I've also thought about uh, the relevance. You're asking now about, you know, how relevant some of these things are. And I don't know so much if that's the point. The point is that you you go to bed at night and you think, okay, I've thought this my whole life. And is that nonsense? I think, um, I mean, one of my thoughts I had recently is – I think there's something very odd going on with the whole idea of dating stuff. Yes. I, I think a big part of the PSYOP is this idea of, um, you know, again, experts who do carbon dating and, and dendrochronology and all this stuff and tell us, oh, this this thing died 65 million years ago or this building was built, you know, the pyramids are 4,000 years old, 5,000 years old. So it, when you across all of lots of these um conspiracy theories i suppose or kind of hidden history stuff this again and again these things come up where the dates don't add up you know the accepted dates and you think that's a really it's actually quite a clever deception because most people can't verify this stuff they don't know what they're looking at you know they don't know how to date uh, a dinosaur bone or the Turin shroud or the pyramids or whatever. And um, I feel like there's probably a lot of things aren't nearly as old as we're told they are. And I think some other things are probably way more ancient than we're told they are. Yes. Yeah. People don't, people don't really stop and think uh, about how much of their, what they perceive as truth actually comes from fiction, just comes from movies books and uh tv shows um or or is at least heavily enhanced by those things Mm. um and then you know people you know talk people talk about um seeding all the time you know they're seeding things in fiction and in films but i i feel like there's a there's another layer to that which is um if you if you put something in a fictional film in a fantasy film or a science fiction film or whatever most people whatever it is will then categorize it in their mind as fiction as in that thing only happens in a fictional universe and then if if something very close or identical to that thing starts playing out in front of them in real life they then struggle to accept it as reality because they still think, no, that's something that happens in films. It doesn't happen in real life. 
I think that's partly why they do these things as well. They put this stuff in films so that when it happens to people, they they deny that it's the reality of it because they well, associate it with the film. Well, there was a movie that I had no idea had come out. I think it was in 2011 or 2012. I think it's called Contagion. Have you heard of it? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd seen that already, and then I remember watching it again at the beginning of all this. And did you, the hair on your arm stand up? Yeah, yeah. Um, but also, you watch it thinking, I guess this is the opposite of what I just said, but you watch it thinking, yeah, but that's that's not what this is. That That's not going on, you know, but it's what people have been told will happen. Mm. But it clearly, it clearly isn't that. It was very interesting the way they just slip that onto Netflix right at the beginning. Yeah, Overall. just uh, yet again coincidence. Coincidence, Jim. Yeah, what are you talking about? There have been so many coincidences, you know. In front of you, there's a crystal ball. What do you see? Um, do you mean what do I want to see? Is that what you mean? What do I want? I'll let you interpret it. I mean, it's a crystal ball. It's sitting. It's sitting in front of you. Yeah. And you're looking into it. Um, I see a very, a very tired and worn down and, um, spiritually tested humanity uh, that suffered great loss but that has finally won the battle against the people who've been controlling their lives for hundreds if not thousands of years and everything is completely new and daunting and there's a lot of hard work ahead but everything is truth the truth has finally uh, overcome all the lies and we get to build something genuine for the first time possibly ever yeah that's an optimistic gaze into the ball so you're saying we are going to build back better? <laughs> yeah, there you go. See that it's a, the clues in my signature, Jam. Yeah, <laughs> six, six, six. Yeah, nobody is safe until everybody is vaccinated. <laughs> Bob, where can I follow you? Uh, I'm on twitter um although i agree with you it's a cesspit but i'm still i'm still clinging in there uh at bob's cartoons um i've got a telegram channel that's just uh bob moran i think and um i don't think i'm on facebook anymore they've pretty much kicked me off uh getter and um, my website is bobmoran.co.uk, where you can see uh, all my work. You can download work if you're a publisher um, free of charge. And there's a film on there you can watch as well that just came out recently, a little documentary about me. I, I saw that. It's very well made. Tess Laurie's in it and, um, and James Dellingpole. 
Yeah. Um, Tess Laurie was in there um, almost by accident. So the guy, my good friend Keith, who was making the film, um, was it, 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 we'd wrapped the whole thing and it was all finished. And uh, he was in a pub and Tess just walked in. Oh. Um, yeah. So and he introduced himself and. Um, she's from. She, she's from my. She's from my side of the pond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's she's brilliant. Um, she's great. And actually, um, I, I don't want this to come across the wrong way, but for a scientist, her kind of understanding of the value of art and creativity is, mm. is amazing, actually. Yeah, her analysis was great. Um, so, yeah, that was that was a good thing. It, was, um, it kind of happened by accident in a way. It was supposed to be a tiny little interview and it just grew into this big thing. Yeah. So Fantastic. again, that will help to to dispel the myth about Bob being an old man. <laughs> All right, Bob Moran. Thank you for joining me in the trenches. Thanks, Jim. It's been great. My name is Jim. This is Jim Warfare. Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.